Welcome to Demand and Disrupt the Disability Podcast. Here, we will learn to advocate for ourselves and each other. This podcast is supported with funds from the Advocado Press based in Louisville, Kentucky. Today's interviewee is Jerry Wheatley. Jerry has been a mainstay in Kentucky's disability community for decades. For the past 30 years, Jerry has worked and volunteered in the field of assistive technology. He has served on the Assistive Technology Loan Board, the Center for Accessible Living Board, and the Heart Supported Living Board. Jerry retired five years ago, but he continues to fight for people with all disabilities. He continues to fight to make private insurance, Medicaid, and Medicare pay for hearing aids and ramps. And he believes that the income limit for all people with disabilities, and he believes that the income limit for all people with disabilities on SSDI should be the same regardless of disability. Jerry hails from Raywick, Kentucky, but he now lives in Bardstown with his wife, Lee. Jerry is also one of my favorite people in the entire world. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Demand and Disrupt, a disability podcast. And today we are joined by Jerry Wheatley. Hey, Jerry, how are you? Hey, Kim, I'm doing just fine. Thank you for joining. I had to do a little arm twisting. You're you're very shy, very, very shy, quiet, unassuming guy, aren't you? That's me. Absolutely. (laughs) So I met... Jerry, for our listeners, I met Jerry when I was a a brand new little baby blind person. I had been blind about three months. And um, when they told me that to go back to school as a sophomore, I I would have to go to, it wasn't even the McDowell Center. It's it's the McDowell Center now, but it was just the rehab center then, uh, which I thought was a drug place. And not where I needed to be, but it turns out it's to rehabilitate people who are uh, newly blind. And I hated it there. And I wanted to go home. And like I said, I'd just been blind for a few months and I met you and Lee there. And I remember you stayed up with me for hours that evening, you and Lee till like after midnight. And you taught me how to use a computer so I could go back to school. Do you remember that? I, I do. Yes, I, I remember. And working with you was kind of easy. All you needed was just a little bit of encouragement and you were gone. You were ready. And, to go. and see, I did not know that lying was one of your skills and you just did it so well. You just you just did it right. So well. I try. <laughs> so I, I, I always refer to you as my blindness mentor, which is just like the absolute worst superhero name ever, isn't it? <laughs> it absolutely is. I'm kind of embarrassed. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know what, what I tell you. You really changed the course of my life. If I had not met you and Lee and you all helped me to know that I could do things as a blind person, give me the tools I needed. And I just I just don't know what I, I just don't know if I'd have done it. So. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about Jerry and your blindness journey. All right. Well, <laughs> I had not as pigmentosa. Mm-hmm. I was diagnosed when I was about eight years old. And I, ha- I was considered a very high partial. Legally blind when I was about 10 or 11. But again, legally blind is so, there's such a wide range between being legally blind and being totally blind. It's, it's incredible, the difference. 
I grew up on a farm and went to public school. All but my last couple of years, I went to the Kentucky School for the Blind. Again, my vision was still pretty good. I was legally blind, but it was good. And uh, after graduating from Kentucky School for the Blind, I went to college, a junior college for a couple of years. And this is back in the 70s before PCs. Uh, but I worked on uh, my degree was in computer programming. But after I graduated, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to farm. I went out and farmed until I was almost 30 and I lost most of the rest of my sight, not all of it, but quite a bit of it, where I could no longer drive the tractor. So I went back to school, uh, to college, went to Western Kentucky University. And uh, go toppers, yeah, right? Nothing wrong with <laughs> WKU and all those darn heels and steps I felt. <laughs> 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 and still and still was interested in computers. And by then we had the PC, at least we had the Apple. And, uh, you know, from there, uh, I, I wound up eventually working for state government here in Kentucky uh, with an organization called the Kentucky Assistive Technology Services Network. And basically from about mid 30s up until uh, you know, mid to late, late thirties, I was totally, uh, lost all of my sight and was totally blind. So retired maybe, uh, five years ago. I'm now 65 and live in Barstown, Kentucky on a little baby farm. <laughs> you know, I remember calling you one time when I was at Western, I, I too went to Western by far the best school, you know, in the state. Um, we, we will hear nothing to the contrary, no opinions to the contrary on that. Absolutely. And I, uh, I remember calling you because I was upset about something and I don't even know what it was. Um, and I, I was, I think I may have been in tears and wailing and you know, all that. And, uh, so you talked me down and, uh, you said, well, you know, if you ever lose your cane, I'm pretty sure there's still one on top of Cherry Hall where I threw the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a very big deal for me, making myself carry a cane. I, and I don't know why it just, as I lost my vision and really needed a cane, it, it, was, it was a struggle to make myself pick that thing up and go out with it. But eventually I did and uh, it worked out okay. But I did throw a few around. <laughs> so tell me about that. Why do you think that was that you were so reticent to pick up a cane? You know, it's such a transition uh, from being partially sighted or low vision to being totally blind. I can remember with some of my buddies who were totally blind and, you know, we'd be out in a strange place or at a meeting or something like that. And anytime we were getting ready to go up, you know, they'd grab an elbow. And I was thinking, well, I don't need to grab an elbow. And at the time, I really didn't. But when I went totally blind, I needed to apologize to all of those guys. It was it's a different world. And it took me a couple of years after losing my light, you know, my light perception and everything else before I really felt comfortable with my mobility and getting around. I always had a good sense of direction. But when I went totally blind, that kind of screwed me for, for a few years, you know, before I really got good and comfortable again. 
I think it says a lot about you that the thing that sent you to college was not being able to drive a tractor anymore. You know, that was such a big part of farming to me was, you know, a person, believe me, a person can be a farmer and do farm, most farm things without sight. And I do them now. I garden, we have some calves, do that kind of stuff. I can fence, I can, I can do everything, but I can't drive a vehicle, obviously. But to me at the time in my late twenties, that was such a vital part to me to be able to, to drive the equipment. And, and, you know, and I got fairly dangerous before I quit and, and I just, I couldn't see myself at that time farming without being able to, to, to be able to operate the equipment. And it, it, it was, it was pretty hard. It was a hard transition for me. All of that part was. And I think, I think still today that there's no occupation that I would rather do if I had my choice starting as a kid again, it would be farming, even though it's not necessarily a lot of money in it. It's just something you grow up with it. You learn to love it and you always want to do it. And when Lee and I retired, I was dead set on coming back somewhere on a little bit of acreage to at least pretend I'm farming. <laughs> so are you enjoying your retirement? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, you know, we do a big garden and we've got, you know, we run eight or 10 feeder calves. We get them early in the spring and keep them to late fall and, you know, got a bunch of fruit trees and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's always something to do. Good, good. So, um, like I've talked about how you were a mentor to me. So right. when, when you were going through, uh, that, that transition into to total blindness, is there anybody who helped you through that? Any mentors that you had? You know, at the time, uh, now when I was low vision in grade school and high school at public school, you know, it's just something I dealt with. Uh, you know, I, I was never around anybody else that had a vision problem. I never met anybody who had a vision problem. So, but when I went to KSB, I was around a lot of people who were totally blind, high partials, whatever. And you become friends with them. And, and I had lots of friends that helped me get through that, you know, that had been, you know, there, there are a lot of us out there with RP and visual impairments that are degenerative like RP. So, uh, you know, I, I had friends that had been through it and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I had a lot of help getting through that part of it. Now, mm -hmm. once I went back to school and wound up working for the Kentucky Assistive Technology Services Network, and that would have been around 1990. And CATS at the time, or it, it's the Tech Act Project for Kentucky, and basically it's all about assistive technology for any disability. It's the promotion of the awareness of and the demonstration of. So we, we dealt with technology in all aspects of disability and, and uh, we had a, and it's federally funded. There was a main office still is, it's still around. And then we had like five centers around the state and my first couple of years working for CATS, I actually worked at the Bluegrass Technology Center. And I mean, I have worked with some amazing people, some advocates that 
are just, you know, I think back how lucky I was to get to be around some of these people, like a Gene Isaacs, who was the queen of augmentative communication, uh, Professor Deb Bowder, who I think is probably retired from U of L, but back when I worked with her, she was a PhD uh, a doctorate candidate at UK, and just so many other people, and th- that I worked with when I, uh, during my time at Cats, and one of the one of the people is I want to mention that recently. Sharon Fields, and if anybody's from Kentucky and they have been any involved with disabilities at all, uh, would know who she is. But she passed away recently and she was amazing. Uh, in 1991, I think I got that year right when the ADA passed. 1990. Uh huh. Very it, close. Uh, whatever year. <laughs> she, she was appointed the ADA coordinator for the state of Kentucky. And so I got to work with Sharon, me and a, and a lady, another lady I worked with named Zola. And we went around and did training sessions on ADA all for state government and working with Sharon was just awesome. And Sharon has, was been, has been a, not just blind, which she was, she was totally blind. She was not just an incredible advocate for blind, visually impaired, but she was an advocate for all disabilities. And she was the kind of advocate. And how can I put this? Uh, To me, it's easy just to go in and raise hell. You know what I mean? Just raise hell and bitch about something. But to be- You do make it look easy. You do make it look easy. (laughs) Watch your mouth. (laughs) But to, to be a true advocate to me, you got to advocate and participate. You got to not only demand, uh, you know, your demand and disrupt, cool name, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. but you not only got to ask for things or ask for the accommodation or, or whatever it is, but you got to participate. You got to be a part of the answer. You got to be able to look on the other side and see, can that accommodate is that accommodation actually reasonable? What can I do to make that whatever it is want me there? So, uh, and Sharon was fantastic about that. She was any any kind of thing that dealt with disability. She was there, whether she was working or volunteering. She did as much volunteering as she did working. So, it was a privilege to work and know Sharon Fields for the past thirty some years. So. Anyway, I just wanted to mention mention her and, uh, uh, you know, to mention her passing. So oh, I'm glad you did. And we, of course, send out condolences to her family. She was truly a legend in in Kentucky. Um, I heard her name all the time when I did an internship in Frankfurt in 1996. And I heard her name a lot then. And, you know, you're right. There is there's a time to kick down the door and there's a time to use your manners. And people like you and me, we could do the door kicking down because Sharon, people like Sharon were there using their manners, right? And we, um, you're better at kicking down doors than I am. Maybe, <laughs> maybe a little bit better. <laughs> I'm better at maybe stumbling and falling through doors and making it making it look like I meant to do it. Maybe that's it. I got you. I, I <laughs> that uh, moves me right into my next Next thing I was going to tell you was we have someone who thinks that you are that for her. So I want you to listen to 
something that Elizabeth Thompson said about you. Uh-oh. My name is Elizabeth Thompson. What can I say about Jerry Wheatley? I'll pause right here so he has time to laugh. Just kidding. On with my audio. Jerry is the goat. Not the animal, but the greatest of all time advocates. Not just for people with disabilities, but all people. Jerry is one of the people in my life I would happily age for, just so I could have worked with him earlier in my career. He made a huge impact on me, just being the person he is every day. He will do anything he sets his mind to, in the most unique way you can imagine. When I quit working at the job where Jerry and I worked together, I took a picture of my office door to remember him by. Yes, my office door. Using his quirky sense of humor, he would hit my door with his cane as he walked by and yell, Hey, wake up in there. Once again, he demonstrated his remarkable skills as the true tradesman he is. Because for the hundreds of times he hit that door, there was basically only one long mark. <laughs> I always say Jerry is like a favored family member, and I would have him a special room in my house if he needed it. As I wrap up, I will leave you with a sign of mine and Jerry's friendship. When he retired, I gave his wife Lee a sympathy card. Love you, Jerry and Lee. So, Jerry, what do you think about that? You have had some impact on people's lives, huh? <laughs> you know, first off. Elizabeth was incredible to work with. I, she is another person I enjoyed. You walk into the office every morning and she was always in a good mood. And believe me, that made such a huge difference. She was always joking around. Didn't matter how you felt. You, you felt better after you walked in and said hi to Elizabeth. So, so I want to ask you about something that you used to talk to me about a lot. And that was learned helplessness. So can you tell me what learned helplessness is? I sure can. And I'm sure, Kim, you've run into it just as maybe not as much as I have because you're not anywhere near as old as I am. But <laughs> for, for example, uh, when, when I worked at Bluegrass uh, in Lexington before I moved to Frankfurt, I did a lot of work with protection and advocacy. We'd go out to school systems, meet with parents and work with different kids who were advocating for, or different parents and kids who were advocating for what they needed at public schools or whatever school they were at. But you would meet some incredible parents and that would be out there really demanding stuff for their kid. They wanted their kid to, to succeed, but you would run into some kids that you were, and, and I'm not talking about just kids that I would work with. These would be adults sometimes that had been so hovered over and so not, you know, not helped to be independent from a kid that they had been taught to be helpless. And that that's what I always considered learned helplessness. I had parents I that were awesome. I didn't, you know, you looking back, you know, they let me just, they let me go out and live and do as a little kid, I would go out and do things, even though, though they knew that some of the things might've been a little bit dangerous. They didn't hover over me. Of course, I had eight other brothers and sisters. So if we lost one, you know, what would be the big deal? But I, I just. That is think, so terrible. 
<laughs> Your siblings are probably going to listen to this and they're probably not going to be surprised. That you no, and they that. probably tried to lose me once in a while. There's no doubt. As a parent, it I, I do walk that line of, I mean, just, just today, I, in all sincerity, asked Michael if a human hamster ball was possible because I'd really like to put my daughter in one and send her to school that way. Yeah. Because um, yeah, it is scary. You you want to protect them, but you yeah. also got to empower them. I, I would just like to know. It's like I can remember one kid in particular when I worked at Bluegrass. This would have been about 93, maybe 92 from Eastern Kentucky, far Eastern Kentucky. I never met the kid and I never met his mom, but he was about 12 years old. And it just uh, went one day. He was vision was perfect. Next day, he's totally blind. So mm. it's kind of like you a month or two later his mom contacted me and you're talking about an advocated uh, advocating mom she was great i mean she wanted that kid to go you know have every piece of technology that could help him finish school and go to college and she was constantly you know she she was awesome and the kid and uh, the kid would call me sometimes and he was so laid back and I mean, he was he was determined. I'm not saying he wasn't. He was he said, uh, I know mom needs to chill, but let me ask you this. And it, he was an incredible kid. And I, I worked with him off and on over the phone for a couple of years. And I always I, I heard that he went to UK and graduated from UK. But kids like that that I met and worked with like you and I can't even remember this kid's name. The, you guys just made an, an impression that made it feel like I was, you know, what I was doing was worthwhile. And like I said, to me, it's the kids like that, that all they needed was a little information. Kids like you, you when you were a kid, I know you're not a kid anymore, but all you needed Far was a little, <laughs> you were on. And if it was a way to put that genetics and that personality and that drive and that parenting in not just kids with disabilities, but when, and all kids, it would be awesome. In, in a way, things are uh, technology-wise, they are so much better. And I think uh, I don't, with the smartphone, the first iPhone, I mean, I thought, my God, this thing does everything, you know? So the technology, mm -hmm. not just the iPhone, the, or, you know, the, uh, the, technology in general, whether it's computer related, whether it's screen readers, you know, how well they've gotten, whether it's augmentative communication, all of this stuff has gotten better. But, and, and I don't know if, you know, the, you know, that kids, I, I haven't worked with kids in a long time after moving, uh, you know, when I went to the main office, I didn't do as much direct services. I was more working on projects. So, but I'm sure there's the same mix of that kids that don't have the drive and kids that do or adults that don't have the drive and adults that do. So I, I find it hard to, to actually quantify the difference between now and then. I just, I know the difference like the Kentucky school for the blind when I was there, most of the kids there in the seventies, if you took vision away and, and just looked at the kids in general, it would have been like any ordinary public school. I mean, kids were just standard kids, you know? 
And Mm -hmm. most of those kids that would go to the Kentucky School for the Blind today are mainstream. So I think that is probably the biggest difference is uh, that, at, at least in that area. And I think for most other disabilities, they were mainstreamed anyway. But, you know, uh, for, mm-hmm. for very, I mean, the Kentucky School for the Blind still has students, but they have students sure. not with just vision. They have, it's more, a lot of multi-disability uh, mm-hmm. students. So that part of yeah. it's changed. And not saying those students aren't awesome because I'm sure they are, but it's just, or when I was there, it was vision only. Now it's I say, yeah. more than just vision. Yeah. And th- there's such a role for those schools or, you know, schools for sure. the blind and things still. There. There, there, yeah. And their role has changed because of the mainstreaming, I guess, in order to serve in order to do things they had to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, uh, because I was mainstream, I never, I never got the Braille skills that I wish I had now. Yeah. I wish I had, uh, I wish I could read Braille really fast and really proficiently. And I just don't, you know, and if I'd have gone to the school for the blind, I would have, you know, I would have had that. So, um, as as, I have the, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, when I went to school for the blind, I learned to read Braille there, but again, I was a high partial. I read Braille with my eyes. And so I could, uh I've been on a Braille writer easily. It's a learn, it's an easy code to learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wasn't, when I was there, if I wanted to read it, I'd pick it up and read it with my eyes. So when I got to back to uh, WKU, when I was no longer able to read print and I had to use Braille, that was one of the hardest things I ever did in my life was to learn to read the Braille with my finger. So my God. It was just, it's just such a disconnect between if you're always taking that input through your eyes to your brain, and then you go to try to do it with your finger. And I, and I'm sure, you know, because you've tried, uh, you played with it some as an adult and yes. uh-huh. it, it's, it's very difficult. I finally got to where I consider myself competent, you know, maybe 40 words a minute, best I ever got where kids that learn Braille from a kid uh, you know, 150, 200 words a minute, they can read as fast as print. It's incredible. So what, what gives you hope for the future? I've been blind now 30, gosh, more than 30 years. So uh, it's a long time. And so in 30 years, what gives you hope for the future? Well, here's the thing now. And, and I never mentioned, I am next to the oldest of nine kids. Right. And (laughs) I, I was the first, you know, my parents knew I had a, vision problem when I was five or six, because, you know, they would, uh, you know, they could tell that I, that wasn't perfect. I didn't get diagnosed till I was eight or nine, but I have a middle brother who had RP. And then I have my next to my baby brother who has RP and they didn't know it till long after I had it or because they weren't born till long after I was, but mm-hmm. one of my brothers, and this is my brother, Ronnie, back when they were doing the implants for retina for different retina diseases, you know, and they were, they had uh, little things. Uh, people would come and speak about it at APH back 15, 20 years ago. I'd go to all of those. I'd keep up with the latest research. And my brother, Ronnie told me something and he's so right. He said, Jerry, keep up with the research, but just, just glance at it. Look at it. Don't, focus on it because if you start 
looking ahead and thinking you're going to get your vision back. You'll quit living now. And, and he was so right because I was starting to get it in my head that, hey, maybe, maybe, you know, the, what was the $250,000 eye implant that put the artificial deal together? I can't even remember the name of all of them. But it, it, he was so right. You have to just say, hey, yeah, I hope someday I see again. I don't think I will. And I don't plan on it because if you do, I, I really think he's right. You'll quit living now. You'll focus too much on what may never happen. So I, my the future, as far as I'm concerned, is I'll be blind till the, till the day they take me to the other side of railway. Well, Jerry, it has been wonderful talking with you again. And um, I am personally glad that uh, my children got to meet you when we were up in Louisville and uh, when we had the, the dinner to honor the people who contributed to the book, A Celebration of Family, Parents with Disabilities. I always plug the book. Uh, Dave, get, Dave yells at me if I don't plug the book. So I plug the book. That's <clears throat> master, isn't he? He is. Yes, indeed. And uh, so my, my kids got to meet you and you got to sit beside my daughter. And if I remember correctly, Lee only had to call you down twice. Uh, you know what? I was on my best behavior that day. <laughs> That's your best behavior. <laughs> that is my best. Well, thanks, Jerry. Everyone, read A Celebration of Family Stories of Parents with Disabilities. Jerry in, and his wife, Lee Corman Wheatley, are chapter 24, which is after 23, which is my chapter. So, Everyone, thanks for joining me. Thanks for joining, Jerry. Thanks, Kim. Thanks to Chris Unkin for our theme music. Thanks to Steve Moore for our providing our transcription. Support comes from the Center for Accessible Living in Louisville, Kentucky. And you can find links to buy the book, The Celebration of Family, Stories of Parents with Disabilities, in our show notes. Thanks, everyone. You say you've seen a change. Just for once I think I would